to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to Season 3 of the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Thank you for listening and for allowing us to continue to celebrate and support great writing. Our host today is Robert J. Wersema. Robert is one of Canada's most recognized and respected book reviewers, with work appearing regularly in the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, National Post, and numerous other publications. He lives in Victoria, where he's a professor of creative writing at Vancouver Island University. A former bookseller, he's the author of three novels, a novella, collection of short stories, and a book of nonfiction. His guest today is Booker Prize nominee Max Porter. Max's previous books are Lanny and Grief is the Thing with Feathers, which won the International Dylan Thomas Prize and was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award and the Goldsmiths Prize. Max Porter's latest work of experimental fiction is The Death of Francis Bacon. Let's begin with a taste of the text, followed by their conversation. Take a seat. Why don't you? Hopeless angle, chin stuck on like a dumpling, cheek like a chop, but I like the cut white set of the cap and the forearm border with the starched guillotine sleeve. This is all worth a look. Take a seat, why don't you? I heard you before, Piggy. A run along fret, poor sibling, to the Catalan whip from the bowl of peas with the garlic oil. Darling mama, sister, odios, Mercedes, my hair must be utterly laughable. No oil. She pats my little linen hill belly, hungry, starch and starve, all your thoughts of food and fizz. The martyr Edward or the painter Francis? She turned. And that suddenly is a handsome prospect. Twisted neck, thick line of brown shadow. That's what I'd seen this morning. Nag at me ridgebone, rather unholy. Little bull at the door between a broken nose. I'd love to see her snarl. There's an odd-lidded familiarity in a sense of too many teeth. Teeth going all the way back down the throat. That's why she has to sit like that, as if sitting for me, lest those rows of teeth burp out. I'd love to see you snarl. See. Minotormachia. See, see, my hair must be utterly laughable. I can feel it fluffing, puffy. All the air I no longer have is up in my hair. No oil, fuzz, fuss, fizz, you say, lust. Stop now. Listen, so vain. I ask her for Francis and I say, please. She takes from her face a handsome hardback and breaks it open like it was made of crackling, lacquered. And we are in the details and she licks her finger. She licks the cut ridge of the pink tip and sucks, licks, pits, puts her finger in the middle fingering, rings an awkward Van Dyke tapering chub bell with the ring pinning the trimmed figure to the belted indentation. It bothers me, paying attention, too pale. Sister, are you in pain? Francis, we're just working. Unbother that dangling finger with a rag. What you know is that a 17th century finger will say to a 20th century eye, look at this, this little wooden box. If I put myself against this lid and push, see how tightly it makes its patient progress into that groove. Heavens, yes. It's perfectly tantalizing and you hardly need me to tell you with a found image what it's like. Slices her finger and holds open a cut to show me, but I'm asleep, refusing to dance her little cliched blood dance. So she reads. 
Bacon is a very remarkable but not finally important painter. Boring! I know this. I know what you're doing. She's up on the ceiling in some kind of trapeze swing seat or harness. Matt bat wings. Couldn't reach her if I tried. These paintings are haunting because Bacon is a brilliant stage manager rather than an original artist and because their emotion is concentratedly and desperately private. Oh, Nathos, you scag! Rien de tel que privé. And the little policeman runs up to the camera and is about to scream, but the image is paused and down she comes from the ceiling above the bed and holds my eyelid open and says, not finally important. And as the little policeman runs again to the camera and seems about to scream, it's paused again and she drops back down again like a great broken apparatus of tarpaulin and picnic stools and lifts my eyelid. It clicks as it leaves the eyeball and says, desperately private. And there he is again, again, the free scream, the about to scream policeman with his little hat. And I know exactly what this is. I know it step by step. It is arriving at a party again, and feeling horribly new, unknown, lonely and awkward, affecting disinterest and realising the only way is to spin on in. Whip up some energy and for that we need drinks. And for that we need more drinks. And she lifts my eyeball. She says, I will see you later, dear boy. See, si. intenta descansar. Wonderful. That's the imagined internal voice of painter Francis Bacon as conjured or channeled or imagined by writer Max Porter. Bacon, in Porter's new book, The Death of Francis Bacon, is dying alone in a hospital in Madrid, overseen by nurse and Sister Dios Mercedes. I want to start with a seemingly straightforward question coming out of that reading. What is the death of Francis Bacon? There are elements of both poetry and prose. Your publisher refers to it as a novel, though it's quite short. How would you describe or classify the book? I like it being called a novel because I like um, almost anything uh, calling itself a novel. I think that's fine. Uh, I, I liked Fantasia. I liked uh, someone called it a sort of fractured um, fictional essay. I like that. I like the idea of it essaying around around ideas of Bacon, un, you know, unfixing ideas of Bacon from the work and unfixing the, you know, vice versa. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I like, I like it to be called a novel because I think novels can be all sorts of things. So, yeah, do with that. I want to follow up on that just a little bit because you've spoken in the past about a, a move toward hybridity and uh, getting past the, the silo mentality of genre. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. What do you mean by the silo mentality of genre? What do you mean by hybridity? And where does this perspective come from? Well, I think it comes from my time as a bookseller and a publisher or an editor. And I suppose that I was more concerned about this early on in my career than I am now, because I've worked out now that one, if, if one is lucky enough to have the space to make work and lucky enough to have an audience to read it, that audience is less interested in genre than the market that gets that book into their hands. Um, and you as a writer can have a, a, a more direct and possibly even more generative relationship with that notional or, or indeed real reader than you need to have with the mechanics of the industry. So sort of what I described previously as the sort of tyrannical... Um, wishing to put poetry in poetry boxes or prose in prose boxes or crime in crime boxes or even even more dastardly, you know, women's fiction in women's, uh, <laughs> women's fiction boxes. I think that I worked out that um, you have to make the work you want to make and, and, and disrupting those things is either inherent in the 
um, in, in the work or or invisible, you know. So, and, and your reader isn't necessarily interested in that. You you got to make the work and communicate and collaborate with your reader with as much integrity, innate integrity for the work that you're making at the time. It has to be bespoke. Um, so, work like this, I have to say, it didn't even occur to me making it. I I, I loved because I'm a curious ex-editor. I love to. To, to, to overhear conversations at Faber about whether what they'll call it, what they'll price it, what they'll put in the jacket, because I love those things. I love books and bookmaking, but I'm not interested in it while I'm writing. I was very interested in a lot of different things to do with bacon and um, prose and form and visual analysis and, you know, whatever, whatever, European art history, but I was never interested in what is this. Um, I just got on and made it. And, and if at any point, uh, I was appalled or, or um, you know, sickened by it becoming something that I didn't like, then I would work against that. So, for example, if it became in any way recycling or, or unknowingly um, or, or crassly employing cliches or familiar formulations of Bacon or his work, then, then I'd recognise that's what it was. It was a cod art history or, or hagiography or any of those things. And then I have to ask myself, do I want those elements in there? Why are they in there? There probably there was an interesting moment in this book when I realised that it would have to be kitsch and it would have to be hyperbolic in ways that relate specifically to Bacon and his his own myth making. So uh, I think what you want my, my aim and, and it's <laughs> it's a lofty aim I'm failing at with my current project, but you know you know this as a, as a writer you you and I. you know things you think things about it might be problematic and it isn't those things that end up bothering you and so once I got into the swing of this it it didn't bother me what it was um it was much more kind of uh feeling sort of sensory I, I guess I guess this will, pro will probably come up against this a lot in this discussion but it was trying to go beyond um a representational relationship with bacon and therefore it had to go beyond a sort of workaday relationship with max porter and his computer i had to put all that behind shut down the emails and get into get into what seemed like a quite distinct space related to him and me a distinct space may be an understatement <laughs> <laughs> yeah you've got you've got to commit right because you know this isn't a book of, you know if i was writing a book about um you know, John Coltrane, I'd need to, I'd need John Coltrane tools. I'd need to speak of, of the world and of the politics and of very, of very many different things. So it was easy to go to a Baconian place. Um, uh, but anyway, we'll, that'll, that'll come up, I'm sure. Yeah. It certainly will in about three questions time. Um, <laughs> but I want to, I want to go back to, to Bacon. Um, you have a background in history of art uh, and a long involvement with Bacon's work at a personal level. Could you tell us a bit about how that relationship started and what it is about Bacon's work or Bacon himself that you find so compelling? It's Bacon's work more than Bacon himself, as, as readers arriving at this book, hoping to find out something about the man uh, have discovered. <laughs> uh, it's the work. Well, I was... Um, I came from a kind of arty family. My grandparents were art historians. My uncle was a painter. My mother was a photographer. I um, I think my earliest encounters with Bacon were an incredible relief 
that I was moving away from work that I found a chore to look at. I was being dragged around galleries or taken to churches or whatever, and suddenly saw this work that seemed to speak directly to me, me and my and my burgeoning human condition. You know, my awareness of the scatological, the sexual, um, the political, the historical, um, and indeed, uh, I think it coincided with my education about the ways of this world. I think. I mean, I can't be exact about the chronology, but I think I probably found the paintings of Francis Bacon around about the same age I learned about the Holocaust or um, the Spanish Inquisition or British colonialism. I, you know, I started to learn about the world and it seemed like the paintings of Bacon stood up both as physical objects that had a lot to say about this in a way that seemed to me startlingly truthful, um, but also as philosophical investigations. And still to this day, I think, his intelligence as a handler of paint and as a person interested in, in ideas and the history of ideas and, and the history of representation, he, he is, he is a, he's a major figure. He's a major, troubling, fascinating, frequently repetitive, um, frequently ghastly, you know, sometimes terribly bad um, painter, a great painter. And I think great painters are interesting. I think painting is interesting. I find it more interesting as I grow older. I find it more surprising that we have this extraordinary history of painted images. Um, and I suppose I, I suppose I, looking back now as well, for many reasons, as, as an English person outside of the European Union who loves Europe and European ideas and European art, um, but also uh, as, a, as, an, you know, as a person looking back on my own time as, as a privileged person living in, the, in, in, you know, sort of, I guess we'd be talking about the cusp of the Blair years the opening of the Tate Modern, extraordinary access to, to art and to culture, and now being a little bit more analytical about what that access was, what was mediating it, what the institutional circumstances were, what the political ramifications of um, those displays were. So it seemed like a good time to have a reckoning um, with, 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 why, with exactly your question, who, why am I interested in Bacon? Because I then went on to study art history and never looked at Bacon. I never studied him. I'd read all the books as a teenager. I've collected books on Bacon for my own curiosity, but I never was taught him. I never unpacked him with other people. Um, I've always done it personally. He's been a sort of private passion. And I think there is, I'm sure it's the same with you, there is a distinction between the things that you keep bubbling along as your private passions and the things that you take public either in your work uh, or in your academic life. Um, and I, in a way, what I've, what I've regretted this year is taking the Bacon thing public and finding, again, ah, oh, publicizing a book is difficult or oh reviews are awful things or yes there's a reason why i can't bear that biographical hammer that lands back down on bacon every time or or the sort of um the myth you know the soho legends being wheeled out again and again and again and indeed one's own legends that you accrue as a writer why would a writer like this write this you know why would a writer that was interested in this write that um, all of which I find um, really uh, problematic, um, but in a way that has, uh, interestingly, only pushed me further into Bacon. I have had better, quiet, contemplative time with the paintings of Francis Bacon, in reproduction, admittedly, because the galleries are closed, since this book came out, than I have in my, in my 25 years obsessing about him. Um, and I think that says a lot about a, a deep kernel of interest that must be there and must be authentic. And also the biography came out. I don't know if it's come out yet in, in Canada, but the revelations, the extraordinary Stevenson biography. Stevenson Swan. Yeah. I was, was going to mention that. Have you looked at it? 
I have. I've got it sitting right on my desk. And what did you make of it? Um, oh, it was certainly very thorough. Mm. And um, I thought it, it got away from a lot of the myth-making. Mm. Um, I, thought it, I thought it pinned him down, mm. it, which is a perhaps appropriate, perhaps terrible way to put that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Locked but, him in a perspex cave with a exactly. load of sand. Yeah. Um, but I, well, I guess this sort of ties into my my follow up question, which is that, that I do have a bit of a background in bacon, and mm. there was a centenary retrospective at the Met that I saw on closing day in two thousand nine, and there was an exhibit at the AGO in Toronto called Terror and Beauty that paired mm. his work with Henry Moore's, mm. uh, which was fascinating. Um, so I, I gulped the death of Francis Bacon down. Like I just, I was there for it from the very beginning, but I have a, a hard time imagining a reader coming to the book without some grounding, at least some grounding in Bacon's yeah. work. So where would you suggest the uninitiated begin? Well, this is, I, I'm a little bit defined about this because I, 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 I'm one of these people that thinks that you can, it's very easy to find things out particularly about someone like Bacon. So, if it, you know, I, I saw someone, you know, we joke about this as writers, don't we, like the stupid Amazon reviews that say, you know, it arrived damaged and all this. But I did see someone say, you know, I don't like Max Porter's books and I don't like Francis Bacon. I didn't like this. And I thought, well, all the ingredients were lined up ready to make you not like this, but why did you read it? It's an interesting thing to do, isn't it? It's an odd decision as a consumer, or let alone as someone that can only read a certain amount of books in a lifetime. I would say that um, we're, we're really lucky. You know, Bacon has been so voluminously covered it, it, not just in English but around the world um you know that right from the you can go you can go in at any angle you can go in psychoanalytic you can go in philosophical you know one of my favorite books is the Deleuze I think it st stands up, up I think it's an extraordinary book if you want a plain I think probably definitive biography the Stevens and Swan I think will it will be hard to beat it packs a lot in um it's hard research they found out a lot of interesting stuff and they don't put anything in there that's for effect they don't have a thesis about francis bacon they're trying to prove they say what they found i think it's brilliant um i think the best book about bacon is the, the sylvester if i were to if i were to choose two if i were to create an ideal triptych <laughs> which it must be of course with my book it would be um the sylvester interviews because i think they're they're fascinating artificial monstrously monstrously fraudulent masterwork of an artist talking about is you know because it's been assembled by david sylvester and i think it's one of the best books about painting and, and why you make work um that, that should be read by writers sculptors politicians everybody and the other book would be the inconabula the book of stuff that was found in bacon's studio because that you know, you know, if you read the book, that's what I've tried to get at is is the clutter, the the the, the associations, both literal and sub subliminal that happen in a person's mind when they're thinking about their own work, especially if their mind is fractured by illness, especially if it's highly unrealistic project. I'm not illustrating Bacon's actual thoughts on his deathbed. I'm creating a literary mode that might speak of of the sort of mess that might be someone playing at being Bacon if they're using fiction as a tool. So these are these are all things quite a long way away from a really good biography, but thank God we've got it all. And the other thing, you know, I was in lockdown here and I had never quite grotesquely, never, I, I'd taken for granted what the what the Francis Bacon estate have done with the catalogue raisonnée online. It's an absolutely astonishing resource. 
that you can just sit and go through a painter's entire output chronologically and see what they did. I mean, particularly with someone that did so little, like did so little, <laughs> usually one or two figures, usually in an artificial space, you know, splayed, splatted, shagging, ripped, <laughs> fighting, whatever it was, you know, again and again and again. Uh, and then his, his own face and the face of maybe, what is it, a dozen or 15 key, key sitters uh, to just, the kind of to create your own gallery experience free of the glass and the entrance fee and the coffee shop and the physical wear and tear of, of trawling around the gallery looking at stuff i had just the most astonishing three or four weeks just in the work clicking through it sitting with it without anyone saying excuse me or move or we're closing today you know <laughs> and and uh, and it's made me realize how i want to do you know i want to do that with agnes martin i want to do that with rosco i want to do that with rubens i want to I want to really look, and, and the internet is very good for that, and it's backlit, and it's um, and it, these reproductions are extraordinary. Um, so I, I I think I would recommend that. I'd recommend someone um, wrap their head around the basis of the biography, had a little peek at the interviews to get a sense of how Bacon presents himself, and how he presents his idea about sensation, particularly about um, moving beyond the literal. Uh, and then I'd just spend a day looking at the images. But of course, one can't be one can't be prescriptive as a writer, but you know. That would be my idea. But we do try. <laughs> yeah. I'd like you I'd like you in a pair of corduroy shorts, nice button-down shirt, glass of sherry. <laughs> Overcast day. Yeah, yeah. Um, Brahms. One must have Brahms. Of course. <laughs> uh, it's interesting you mentioned the, the studio because uh, I visited Dublin a few years ago. Yeah. And one of the highlights of the trip was seeing that studio, which was transported and reconstructed at the Hugh Lane Gallery after Bacon's death. It was it was such a transporting experience, and mm -hmm. to hear that um, that you were trying to that you were drawing from that is that one of the mm -hmm. ways you put yourself in Bacon's head? Um, yeah, and I, I would do it to anyone. Else. It's not a particular, you know. It's it's you know. Well, you've seen, you know, I've done I've tried done it in a different way through the lens of obsession and and trauma, but I did it with Ted Hughes in a way, it's a sort of contribution to the studies around a very loaded cultural figure, particularly a complicated and potentially um, canonical male figure that I, who I believe one shouldn't leave alone. I think one should, should, should interrogate and ruffle and, and unpack these people, particularly when they have a huge bibliography, you know, what have we said about Bacon? Are we saying the right things about Bacon? Is it time to think more carefully about how we pitch it? And for me, that effort has to include the world outside the rarefied space of visual analysis or art history, or, or indeed biography. I think you have to have um, you have to have money. You talk, got to talk about money. You've got to talk about the physicality. That's my one critique of the Swan and Stevens book: is you don't. I don't think you get quite enough of what it means to do a six by four foot canvas in the time he did them. Uh, uh, where were they stretched? How were they made? How heavy were they? Did he stack them up? Did he lose them? Did he fall on them? Did he, you know? So one of my things was to try and use the language in the book to get at the physicality of it. And I want nicotine, I want alcohol, um, bodily fluids, smells, um, because those are the things that were missing for me when I, when I went to look for great writing about the work that I love, be it, you know, Anthony Blunt writing about Poussin or, or you know, or, or, or reading old issues of art forum to see what people were saying about Don Judd in the 70s. Like I want, I have a hunger to see who and how they get it right. 
And obviously fiction, some fiction about art is just horrendous and isn't appropriate and isn't good. Sometimes high academia is absolutely perfect mode. You know, like I think, for example, you know, um, you know, Lacanian analysis about, um, you know, about 70s performance art is the perfect tool. It gets it. I think it unpacks it and, and extends it and deepens our relationship with it in a really interesting way. I, 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 I felt that I wanted to try and sound a new note around Bacon that had some more of the... Um, detritus, I suppose, um, the, the sensory... Um, and that's to do with the viewer or, and or reader of the novel, who I think are comparable characters in my in my architecture right you know the person facing a blank page or looking at a picture I want a bit more of the of what you had for breakfast you know coming back on you I want more of, uh, is that do you, do you is that how you say um belching and you say repeating on you you know we, we um, can yep <laughs> I want I want Bacon's life and art and his preoccupations uh to repeat on him as he lies dying and for that to be palpable for the reader in a way that isn't available if you if you stay within the realist model uh, a complete um breakdown of the distance of the, the clinical yeah well, whilst, it, whilst acknowledging because readers are sophisticated people and i know this and you know this that it's an artifice that it it's a game using fictional tools and that one can only fail and and, and fail again <laughs> but you know same as the the hugh lane it's it's a fascinating thing to see the studio but it's also deeply frustrating because it's behind glass. You only get a very controlled view of it. You only get a controlled look at it. You only see what they want you to see. You can't smell it. You can't touch it. You can't go in and have a drink with the guy. So it's 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 taking something that should be messy and interesting and tactile and, and translating it into the sphere of the rarefied, mediated, controlled, owned, um, historic, historified. You know. So I think it's a, it, that 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 I'm interested in that frustration. And that temptation, you know, the, the desire to get closer, to get past the glass. Um, so I hope if this book sort of uh, some of the most, you, you know, I, I was sort of gleeful at some of the responses that sort of talked of physical repulsion, um, confusion, anger, um, you know, uh, sort of a, a confusion tinged with um, physical <laughs> physical sickness. These are all very much of, of you know, of Bacon's toolkit. You know, of course. As I say, it would have been very different if I, you know, I actually went to see my first my first uh, uh, exhibition that sort of out of lockdown proper. I went to see Paul Arego at the Tate Britain the other day, um, whose work I'm very interested in um, for quite different reasons, for, for narrative reasons, I think, for political reasons. Uh, and I and my first realization on walking into the room, having only ever seen a you know handful of her pictures in the wild before, was was about their physicality, was the way they are made. Her early work is is collaged and and, and cut out and stuck on and built. And her late stuff, I I'm, I'm, I admit to my own chronic ignorance in this regard. I had no idea. I thought she was painting in oils. They're all pastel. And so I was thinking to myself, if I were to write a, 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 about Rego, it, the, the click. The click of a pastel leaving paper and a body, you know, on, uh, on the flat, not not on the vertical. So, sort of the lateral click and pack of the of the model in the studio and the doll in the studio and the father in the mind and the and the, and the woman on the table in front of you and the corpse and the and the puppet and all these sorts of things. And I could already sort of start to think how you do oil pastel in prose, how you and it would be completely different to the Bacon book. And 
Uh, I can't remember your question, but off, off I've rambled into someone else. Um, that was perfect yeah. because I think you've encapsulated about three or four questions in that answer. So you're making my job. Okay. Um, but when you, what, what was your experience of the Hugh Lane? You found it fascinating as a historical artifact, right? And I, I, the word that keeps coming to mind is squalid. Like there's a, a level of, of squalor to the way he worked that, I mean, of course it's mediated. And I found it frustrating that there's, there are two viewing windows into the room. So they're carefully controlling what angle you can see yeah. things at. And that seems at odds with my experience of Bacon as a painter. And yet somehow fitting the, the sense yeah. of enclosure, of mediation, the, the requirement that things be behind glass. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's exactly at the control, the sense that he doesn't want you seeing past the figure or out of the door or behind the screen. He doesn't want you figuring out what is bone and what is muscle. He only wants you to be in the awkward, um, highly choreographed uh, ambivalence of the two. And that's, I thought that was my main challenge of how do you do the ambivalence? How do you get the uh, oblique, um, sli- how do you achieve that slippage that is the generative thing in Bacon, that is the thing that creates the sensation because it's somewhere in between figure and violence or, or understandable by the eye or, or, or pure sensation. And I, that's why I like the Hugh Lane because it, it, I left feeling bothered and frustrated and curious about squalor, as you say, versus perfection. Like how, do you make, how did you make those images, those beautiful as I say, I think in the book, you know, uh, unbroken color fields, without so much as a uh, without so much as a pubic hair or a, or a, or a dent in it, um, in that pigsty, and it's because it's an it's an illusion. Um, mm-hmm. it, the whole thing is this carefully crafted, um, you know, reliquary. It's it, it's part of the hagiography, um, and was and was while it was being while it was being occupied and especially afterwards, I think. And I like to buy into that. I feel like we owe that to Bacon to go, you know, to kind of keep some of the myths in circulation. Oh yes, he was always drunk. Oh yes. He only painted in the morning. He liked to have sex, you know, like, like give him the, the sort of um, preposterous propaganda (laughs) about his own creativity that he so craved because it would be, you know, it's not like Velasquez who just was in the studio every day painting. Um, I don't know. It's it's an interesting one. and And I, and I like, I like how much the Hugh Lane um, forces you into a consideration of your own bodily s- status, stature, um, the kind of conditioning of yourself as viewer. That seems very bacony. It wouldn't have worked with someone else, I don't think, you know? Yeah. It seems right for him. So let's, let's bring it back to, to your work and, and your process. Um, if one knows Bacon's work, um, well, just to backtrack a bit for people who haven't picked up the book, this is the novel is told essentially in seven imagined paintings. And if one knows Bacon's work, and my experience of reading it is that you can almost see the paintings as you read. Each chapter, section, painting coalesces into that image in the reader's head. Every reader will, of course, have a different image, but it's it's a very powerful bit of painting as writing that I've never seen before. Um, I was reading in a Paris review piece from a few years ago, you describing trying quite unsuccessfully to 
paint like bacon as a teenager. And I think you've, you've managed that feat through words in this book. And I keep coming back to the, the old adage that uh, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. And I think yeah. this is probably even more true of, of visual art, but somehow you've made it work. How did you approach the book at a craft level? Like how did well, I, line yeah. by line? <laughs> it's a, that's a beautiful thing to say. I'm really grateful to you. I, um, it's not something one would want to, there's something um, incredibly improper about attempting it. Um, I, I, that's probably why I would never have thought to do this book had I not been in, in, the, in the sort of um, pandemic cage, so, cage of selfhood and domesticity and needing somewhere to go to that felt uh, scratching a deep itch. Um, the, the, the impossibility of writing about, well about it, um, it seemed to me a purely technical problem to begin with. Uh, well, for, things are always a structural problem to begin with for me. And that's what, and and and, and it is it, the seven paintings was late. That wasn't that wasn't the solution to the structural problem. The solution to the structural problem was the nurse, and the patient. So, because for me, that's actor and audience, or novel and reader, or analyst and 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 patient, or Bacon and Sylvester, or and both playing the game of playing the part. I don't imagine Bacon playing being played by Bacon. I imagine it being a mask that is handed between them while everyone tries to strike the right note to um, generate in the reader a sense of, or, or, or sort of range of unanswered questions about Bacon that, that generate feeling. So once I set that up, I, I quite liked the sort of cod Beckettian way that they might be in, in a sort of theatrical fight to the death. Um, and then it occurred to me that, that in itself was a relatively literal translation of Bacon's visual art. So I thought, what if I had, I mean, you're my ideal, ideal reader in some respects. I thought, what if I could create a situation where I create a sort of flicker reel of Bacon's paintings for those people that know them or, 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 or even can, can half remember seeing them so that they aren't sure what images they're remembering in the same way as Bacon isn't because he's dying and get that flicker reel happening in your head. So there are, there are probably 150 direct bacon elements, iconographic things. Yeah, and they're there to see or not see. And I hope they afford some pleasure if they're seen or felt or or half remembered. But I don't think uh, I don't think the books is is going to fall or <laughs> or stand related on on any kind of strict connoisseurship of those things. And I think that'll be a boring way to read it. It's got to be felt. So I think if you're like, oh, that must be. Um, you know, rider thrown from Picador, nineteen seventy-six. You're reading the book in the wrong way, you know. Um, and so then that sort of sets it up. And then when I started writing, I thought to myself that the uh, the main technical problem—I won't say a challenge because um, all writing is, is a challenge, isn't it? And it's good. That's why we do it. It's, it's difficult. Um, but the problem with this book was how to create a, a range of of marks. Um, without it being a gimmick. I'm very allergic to gimmicks for a writer that uses them as much as I do, you know? <laughs> um, so I was very keen to try and create a, a splashing effect, a, a, dizzying, a, a dizzying effect, and then a sudden figurative weight effect. I suddenly wanted figures landing in the space effect. And I, then I also tried in chapter, picture six, the smearing. I wondered what it would be like to blur or smear or smudge 
the image and is that possible in language without losing your reader completely and that's one of the reasons the book is so short because i think if you in, if you indulge it would be indulgent i think from the writer's point of view to do that at any great length uh i think it would be um it wouldn't it wouldn't be right for bacon either who is who is an artist of slap and tickle uh, not deep meditation. You know, he isn't Rubens. They aren't meant to be contemplative and decoded. They're supposed to lurch up at you out, out of your nightmares or off the wall of the Tate and that that be a comparable thing. So uh, that was that was the main thing, really, is, is what what is the mark? What is the gesture? Um, how is pure prose going to get me there? If I'm going to smuggle in these bits of history, bits of childhood, you know, to create the incunabula for Bacon's mind, then how busy can I make it without it being preposterous chaos? Uh, and how ordered can I make it in a, in a kind of representational, in a compositional sense, without it becoming too obvious, without, without me just writing, a, describing Bacon paintings, which would be a dismal use of, you know, some poor bastard spent, you know, six bucks on this book. That's going to be a horrible waste of his time and mine, because you can do that for yourself by looking at a book or looking at the internet. So it was it was an interesting thing, and and it, and it was quite a. It felt this is a bit portentous to say this, but it felt like quite a high wire thing that I, I don't think I've been ready to try before. Um, it felt like a, a conversation with my um, with my previous hybridity in in a way of sort of testing how far it can go before it becomes uh, a fool's errand. Um, and it seems. Um certain parts that you mentioned, the, the, the slippage uh, in, in Portrait 6, that, that sort of blurring. Um, you, see, you see the roots of that in, in the polyphonic approach in, in Lanny, um, but this takes it even further than that did. Yeah. To, to you know, you know when you see a show, effect. you know when you see a show of paintings and they've got the vitrine in the middle? I mean, I love a vitrine anyway. I was, almost wrote a book about Joseph Boys that was going to be, you know, 12 glass boxes full of uh, felt and fat. But I, um, I, I, you know, when you, you're looking at the paintings and they're the thing you're supposed to understand and you do that horrible thing of reading the wall text and then you're, 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 all the beauty of discovery is sucked away across the terrible empty room as you're told what to think. You're told what the painting is about and when it was painted and, you know, and what it illustrates and it's just crushing. Uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm very anti-wall texts, um, but find myself perversely drawn to them in, in a kind of uh, masochistic way, you know. <laughs> anyway, I love it when you turn and there's a vitrine in the middle of an exhibition which has sketchbooks and paraphernalia, uh, napkins, doodled napkins, cigarette butts, all, you know, all the way up, up the scale to the Hugh Lane represent, you know, recreation of the studio. Because that seems to me to get it seems to me to provide instantly the the mystery as well as the security of, of context. It, it, it mystifies it exactly the same way that it demystifies it, it in perfect, almost almost erotic um, tension. And I thought if I could do that in the in the prose, so like so even like you're you're my perfect reader because you know a lot about Bacon and you've read my work right. So, but even you, I hope, would have at times thought, the "Fuck is this nursery rhyme?" Or, uh, is that made up? What is it? What this is? It, was this translated from the from the Czech, or you know, or, or who's this person? He's in the cab with. Why is he swallowing a fist? Why front? Why, why Caesar? And the point is that no one will ever know, and the painting is never finished. And you can keep on adding iconographic or or you know or imagistic or, or symbolism or whatever it is you want to layer into your work of any kind. 
Um, and it's only the point at which the, the, you know, the viewer can, can come with nothing or come with everything. And they're totally different experiences. So I, I try to capture a sense of that random, um, but somehow also prof- like devastatingly um, exacting uh, calibration of elements that was in Bacon all the way through. He, he was quite, a, his palette was limited. Um, and so I wanted to sort of blur the edges of his influences and, 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 and his life so that you, so that you were in yourself thinking, have I, a, you know, is that something from my childhood? Is that something from the bottom of the 20th century? Is that an Anglo-Irish aristocratic thing? You know, I want it close enough that you can smell it, but I don't want you to show you what the meal is. Um, I, it's, 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 I guess it's a, it's a preposterous thing to try and explain. Um, it has so to be read. The best advice is just to read the book. What I said, you know, I've said to my publishers about this book, you sure you want me to talk about this because it really must be read. And then they say, well, no, because it's interesting to talk about it. And you seem interested in enough in in the process and, and, and how you write and everything. But I feel that there's this sort of terrible death occurring every time I talk about this book. Um, the, 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 the energy and the uncanny of, of these juxtapositions and of these cultural um cameos is being sucked out of the book the more I discuss it like it's been a really interesting one to talk to about with my translators because I would imagine because usually my translators are pretty spot on they say is that you know when you say you know um uh he you know he bent me backwards on the pool table are you talking about sex and I go yes um quite rough like drunken sex in a pub and they go brilliant thanks thought so and this book they come back and say are you saying this and I'm like no (laughs) <laughs> like is this from like is this from the pit like, absolutely not and of course that's happening in you know these people are good enough to, to spend 10 minutes writing me an email about it and we can clear up a misunderstanding and try and get close to the original but for most readers i don't have that control and nor should i so the, the the possibility for misinterpretation of this book is is vast but isn't that in itself close more closely related to painting and history of visual art than it is to what we now live in which is quite a prescriptive and quite a commercial mode in fiction where a lot of a lot of particularly in the sort of social realist tradition or contemporary mode is is telling your reader exactly what they have to think from page one um, and giving them a relatively narrow aesthetic or moral canal in which to paddle um, I, I hope that the canal walls are absent and we're all flapping around in the bacony mud in, from page one here, and that, that that might be slightly more, if not rewarding or pleasurable, then slightly more, um, well, slightly more like looking at Bacon's paintings, you know? <laughs> well, not only, um, this, is, this is a good way to move toward wrapping this up, because it's not only like Bacon's paintings, but it's like your work overall. Um, the the boundaries in your fiction seem to be, um, if not absent, at the very least, permeable. So you have these, um, I don't want to say intrusions because they're so central to the text, but you have these iconic mythic or folkloric figures, Ted Hughes's crow, um, the, the genius loci, uh, green man figure, dead papa toothfort, um, sort of breaking through the, mm-hmm. the expected boundaries. Um, how does Bacon fit with those figures? How does he fit within your work as a mm-hmm. whole? This is the nicest question I've been asked about this book. 
and, and, and the answer is exactly the same as I would have given if we'd spoken about Lanny, that I want the membrane as a, re as a reader of children's books and, and whatever, fantasy, sci-fi, poetry. I want the membrane between the world and the work to be thin and permeable. I want ideas to travel across time and space and into the reader beyond the, beyond the page, but also beyond our understanding of what a myth means. Like the green man, I want the green man to become contemporary conservative politics as much as I want him to become Roman propaganda. I want it slippy. Uh, and I think that I exactly the same intention here with the paintings of Bacon. You know, when you leave an exhibition that you've loved, let's say it's painting and you want to go home and paint. You want to rush out of the gallery and tell everybody that there is this thing that is doable, that we all could do if we worked hard enough, which is the, the creation of, uh, of time travel, of, of, of body travel, mind travel, you know, um, miracles. Um, and you're fired up with it. And then by the time you get home, you're just like, oh, yeah, I saw, I saw that nice exhibition today. It was good. <laughs> it's all gone. Uh, but that half an hour when you leave, or even, you know, maybe it's even a, a split second sometimes, of the possibility that I am those figures, those figures are me, that, uh, that these things live beyond the, the, the incredibly shallow and momentary human existence in relation to particularly the strictures and drudgeries of capitalism and the sort of spiritual squalor of that condition, that there are these little portals that one encounters in literature and in art, and particularly, I think, with music, that take you quite quickly, quite a lot higher. Um, and that there's millions of ways in different spiritual and artistic traditions of describing what that is. But what I, but I love, I love exactly what you're saying. I love the idea that it's a membrane that is occasionally, when, when carefully crafted enough, that, is, that, is, that it allows you to pass in and out. Um, so I just wanted to get, um, <laughs> I just wanted to get into 2020 this whiff of wine and vomit and, and turpentine and, and, and particularly, as I said at the very beginning, this, that that is connected to something that is now gone, lost, which is the, which is the Europe that, that Bacon was in love with. Um, even before, you know, when he was losing money, I suppose, even before he made it all. Um, and that's purely romantic, but it's connected to the ecstasy, I feel, the jouissance of 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 understanding someone else's effort and feeling it and feeling it reverberate in a completely bespoke way within me um and i guess that is whilst it's a pretty bloody niche proposition and i'm and i'm very chuffed they were even bothered and i'm incredibly chuffed that you came out and would talk to me about it and all these sorts of things it does seem on quite a profound level connected to why i want to write books um, and, and I, I don't think I'll do another book about an artist or anything like this, or you know, maybe I'll do the death of X every few years. But it did it did reignite my interest in in the, in the collaborative project between reader and, and writer, which I take very seriously and I think is special. Um, I, it's a thing that motivates me, and I find uh, curious and worth preserving and worth protecting in in a time, as I say, of, of cultural. Um, conservatism. I, I want that to be a radical encounter and one not, as you said at the very beginning, not mediated by market or genre or the, the, the label across the bookshelves, but mediated purely by your intelligence as reader and my, my, my gesture or statement or offering as writer. Um, you have to do the work. I've only done half of it. So it, 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 I find it really interesting and um, I, I, I want to keep on thinking that it's more like painting, the relationship between a viewer and a painting or an audience in a theatre 
than it is just a fella going into a shop, spending money on something that, that a publisher has put out there. You know, I want it to keep having the, the, the energy and the risk and the ambiguity of, of the meeting of the artwork. And that sounds like a perfect note to leave it on. <laughs> I'm sorry I ramble so much, but you've asked me such nice questions. Oh, no, that was, that was terrific. That was Robert Worsema in conversation with Max Porter on his latest book, The Death of Francis Bacon, which is available from fine booksellers the world over. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn. Original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director. And I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Music